You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors episode 21 with Paul Gleason. Paul Gleason is a big-time adventurer. This is the only way, uh, this is the, the, the most accurate way uh, in my head I can uh, describe Paul. Um, so, uh, topic of adventure was discussed many times on the podcast. Um, episode 14 springs into mind, Wild Adventure Way, uh, and their CEO, Caroline Birch. Um, also, uh, episode 12 with uh, Kuba Standera, who was uh, going to cycle through Sahara Desert to go fishing there out of all the places. And um, and obviously episode 16 with Tomas McIntyre, uh, who cycled solo and unsupported across the United States. And this year he's gearing towards cycling across, or should I say, down the length of Africa. Um, but so we discussed adventures many times, but I suppose out of all those adventures, um, Paul has uh, probably the longest resume uh, and uh, not only longest, but kind of like a biggest, you know, most difficult, at least in, in my estimation, um, adventures or, or expeditions. Um, so to name just a few, he cycled across the Australia. Um, then um, he, he crossed the Atlantic in a rowboat. Yep, rowboat, crossed the Atlantic. And, um, and also he... Uh, he was at, he attempted to cross uh, the Northwest Passage in the Canadian High Arctic, also on the, on human power um, rowboat again. Um, so so these are really like a, a monumental expeditions. Um, at least at least this is this is how I how I feel about it. Um, so I'm quite happy. I am quite happy that Paul accepted the invitation to the podcast. And is going to share with uh, with all of you um, stories from his adventures. And um, just before we go to the main podcast, um, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, whatever whatever platform you're using for podcasts. We are there, so please subscribe and rate, rate five stars. If you feel we don't deserve a five stars, leave a comment uh, and tell us why. But if you think the podcast deserves five stars, go to the platform uh, that you're using to listen to your podcast and rate us and leave the review. This is great help and really helps in development of the podcast. Um, so, And also don't forget to uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You can find all the links um, to relevant social media on the a, on a, on a, on a website, tommysoutdoors.com. Okay, so now, without any further ado... Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Gleason. Paul Gleason, welcome. Welcome to the show and thank you for doing this. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. So uh, uh, with us today, Paul Gleason, uh, we met earlier on some other occasion and uh and then you shared the story about your adventure and uh so obviously today on that podcast you're in a capacity of an adventurer and you have uh, a lot of adventures you can share with us 
So this is this is what I'm saying. You're you're a TEDx speaker. You there's a TEDx video on the on YouTube. You're sure, talking yeah. about one of the your, your adventures, and also on your on your website there's a number of things that you've been doing. So maybe it's just you know I'm just saying you're an adventurer, but maybe you want to introduce yourself in any different way to our listeners. Yeah, well, look, I suppose <laughs> we can, we can all put different labels or different hats on ourselves, but um, yeah, like I mean, if I was to maybe take a step back um probably for most of my adult life i've been i've been fascinated by us as humans and how the mind works and mm. how we work and how some people can flourish some people can get stuck at times how we do at setbacks etc so um i suppose unbeknownst to myself starting maybe 15 years ago i started to maybe express that through doing different adventures mm-hmm. um you know, my training originally was in tax and finance. Wow. Um, in the last decade or so, I've sort of transitioned into performance coaching. So mm. working with individuals and working with teams in companies around sort of enhancing what we do and enjoying and being more engaged in what people do. And I suppose on the adventure side, like I started uh, years ago, I decided to cycle across Australia. That was the first long distance trip yeah. uh which was coast to coast from perth to sydney and it was like a, this this solo self-supported kind of yeah cycle. it was um i was traveling with some friends i was living in australia at the time mm-hmm. and uh i got this idea that i wanted to do this and then i thought well it's the challenge of it you know it was about a five thousand kilometer trip so i was the only one cycling and then i thought well if i'm going to do it would i use it for something a little bit more purposeful than yeah. just me yeah. so contacted a, a charity in australia and said why don't i try and raise some money for you i'm going to be doing this anyway so um and i think probably again maybe without being massively consciously aware of it at the mm-hmm. time i sort of always felt i've been very lucky in life you know i yeah. grew up here in ireland you know i didn't want for anything great mm-hmm. parents great family and i suppose maybe I'm, I'm aware there's a lot of people far less fortunate than i am so decided to use the trip to raise some money and and when I did that then I said okay I need to try and get maybe somebody to come with me because mm-hmm. if I'm on the bike six seven ten twelve hours a day I'm yeah. not going to be really raising a whole lot of money yeah so um I put a sign up in a hostel in Melbourne where I was living mm-hmm. um and somebody answered that Tori and then she came with me on the trip so mm-hmm. uh we we raised a, a little bit of money for a, a 21 year old Mitsubishi Sigma that was the car so um, I'd leave in the morning on the bike Tori would stay in the town wherever we were and fundraise then in the evening time she'd jump into the car and meet me and catch you you up on wherever I was so it was it was sort of nearly not disheartening but what you know it might take me eight or nine or ten hours mm-hmm. you know she'd do it in two or one and a half or, <laughs> or whatever you know so, but in a car it doesn't count <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so um so that was I think that was the start of the adventure and, and side. where where you where were you staying overnight was it like always in a in a in a town or some in a village or was it like a tent and then just a camp yeah we, we i looked originally at camping and bringing tents tents and stuff and then i thought if i can i saved up money to do it so i, I had money just to pay for like little motels or, or b&b's or, or in australia for any people any of your listeners like in in australia when you go across the nullarbor plain so it's the mm. it's the the um you know, when you go east from Perth, mm-hmm. after about about 800 kilometers or so, you'll come across an Ullabore plane that runs right through pretty much up into Adelaide. Yeah. And um, it's a stretch where you really have nothing out there. So you'd have a roadhouse, which would be a petrol station, right. a restaurant, a pub and a shop. And then 
200 kilometers of nothing and then you have another roadhouse and then another one mm. so that stretch of it um is like pe- people living there people live there yeah so whoever's running but the are, roadhouse, are they like living living there or they just have a duty to run that roadhouse and they're kind of stuck there for a couple of weeks and then somebody changed yeah know, kind of like a lighthouse it, it, duty. yeah it was interesting because someone asked me recently did people look at you doing that think you were crazy mm-hmm. and i said well crazy is a again it's a very subjective thing mm-hmm. um but i'd look at people who were living out here in the middle of nowhere and they were basically working running the shop or the pub yeah. or whatever working in it and i was fascinated to go wow like what brings you out here in the middle of nowhere and i remember one day thinking you know one fellow i met i was like are you running from something <laughs> or you know <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a bit of an odd individual but um so i was nearly more i mean for some of them they actually said I just love I'm a country person and mm-hmm. you couldn't put you couldn't pay me enough to be in a city so yeah it was interesting in one way I might look at them and go god that's a bit different living out here in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere they could have looked at yeah, me exactly. living in a town going yeah you couldn't you couldn't yeah. drag me there so sure it's sure. it's sort of um that's what I love about these trips is it's sort of I suppose you meet people that you might not ordinarily meet yeah. and because you're on a bike you're going pretty slow yeah yeah um, oh yes and you have a time to you've kind time of absorb to and observe and so yeah on. yeah and, and it also gets you out of your your kind of like a template that you're in and you think that everybody goes like in this routine right you absolutely. go in the morning you do something and like this is how the life looks like and then you go in and you see guys who are living and running roadhouse in australia it's like oh hang on a second totally that's like not what i like and they said like well how could you do anything else because they're in their own kind of frame yeah. of mind and they're like well this is this is all you know this is yeah funny. yeah yeah <laughs> i think that's the great thing with traveling and with getting a chance to do different adventure trips is you do meet people you, you just get exposure to different types of people different walks of life mm-hmm. i love listening to people so i love mm-hmm. just hearing people's stories about mm-hmm. where they've come from what they've done how they ended up here um yeah. like i remember it was only four days into the cycle and i got hit by a car oh. and um i it wasn't like a car came past me at night time it was the la- i'll never forget actually it was the longest day of the trip mm-hmm. and it was i think it was about 240 kilometers and my knee was at me um mm-hmm. I didn't really have my bike set. I changed my bike set up and it just it was yeah. just sort of at me a bit. So I was going slower than what mm. I, I might have ordinarily gone. And I'd say I can still feel the pain. I remember every maybe half an hour or so I pulled over in pain. So I strapped up my knee. And so it was probably about seven, seven thirty when I was getting to the, mm-hmm. the town. And I was just coming over the brow of a hill. I'd just gone over a hill. So it was dark and I had lights on, but mm. I, I could see the cars coming behind me because I'd see the lights yeah. and other beams ahead yeah. of me. And I just, it just happened so quick. This guy came past me and, you know, he must be doing, I don't know, they were all probably doing about 100 kilometers an hour or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he just smashed his side mirror onto my elbow and then I just went into the oh. ditch. So I jarred my knee a bit more, but I was fine. You know, I, I he, he hit me, I'd say from his rear view mirror. Saw me going into the ditch and he came back and I, I never forget again, his hand yeah. was shaking. I think he probably thought he just killed me yeah, or something. Yeah. So yeah. I was fine, but I, I, I couldn't, it took me nearly... 10 days before i could leave i tried to leave there twice in the bike and i got like 10 15 kilometers and my knee felt like it was about to pop and and if it was the last day or something you might have just gone on with it but Mm -hmm. because i pretty much the whole trip ahead of me yeah i went back and i I got some physio eventually it was it was fine good Mm -hmm. to go but even just that like you get a chance to stay this was in um i think it was norseman 
if I'm not mistaken. So it's a mining town and like oh. you get to see just coal mining. Yeah, it was um could have been coal, copper, I think different minerals okay. and uh out in Western Australia and um you just got to meet people in the town and people who were there for like you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. some people would come in working in the mines for a month mm-hmm. or two, in and out, in and out. Mm-hmm. So you just get to meet different people. So that yeah. was, um, That's a fun you know, the physical challenge was definitely the appeal at the start mm-hmm. with these trips. But then as you go through different ones, you realize ah, there's a lot more to this than okay. just so, the physical So that was side. something that you kind of discovered while you, while you were in it. Yeah, so it was like, oh, I'm gonna do this this physical difficult thing, cycle across the Australia. Yeah, and then once you get into this, like, oh, hang on, there's more into it, right? Exactly, like everything we've just chatted about, and you, I realized as well that I got hit a second time. It, it was like the more went wrong on the trip, the more media coverage you'd get, which helped the charity raise <laughs> money. So in a sort of a perverted way, like, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. you know, if you get like the last day of the trip, I was um. I was coming into, so Bondi Beach in Sydney was where mm-hmm. I was going to finish because I started on Cottesloe Beach in Perth. So I, w- I went for a swim. So the mm-hmm. idea was, right, go for a swim in the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. get on the bike and go mm-hmm. and then finish the other side and mm-hmm. go for a swim in the Pacific. So I was about, uh, I was only 10, 15, I think it was about 10 kilometers from the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming in the Princess Highway from Sydney. It's three lanes or four mm-hmm. lanes of traffic and I'm, I'm over at the edge mm-hmm. and I just hear the screeching of a car brakes mm-hmm. and as I heard the screeches, I was just sort of midway going over my handlebars. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a surreal thing because I was like, have I been? Yeah, yeah, I think I've been hit. <laughs> so I've, I'm flying over the handlebars and I, I put my hand out to sort of break my fall. And I, I don't, I didn't, I'm not sure if I got knocked out, but I sort of like opened my mm-hmm. eyes and I went in. Mm-hmm. There was people standing around me and, and I was sort of, I ended up breaking my hand, but I've broken, I'm sure you have as well. If you've broken a lot of bones. Mm-hmm you know you've adrenaline pumping through yeah, your system it so it's not really necessarily that sore yes so i was like ah, i'll worry about that later a couple of scrapes and stuff but i rang the um the pr lady from the charity had arrived in from yeah. melbourne because we'd gotten a lot of coverage and mm-hmm. we'd raised a good few quid along the way and um i rang and said look I've, i'm after getting hit i'm fine mm-hmm. but the back wheel was totally scrunched up so yeah. i said i can't cycle it yeah. So I said, I'll run the last 10 kilometers because I didn't want it to finish on the side of a highway. Yeah, yeah. She said, no, no, stay there. You Like there's press and media and stuff. You have yeah. to come, you, you have to come in on a bike. <laughs> so, so I stay, I said, fair enough. She goes, I'll, I'll try and get a bike in a shop or something. Mm-hmm. So she went into a bike, explained the situation and the guys in the bike shop had heard an interview I did that morning. Mm-hmm. So they said, oh, here, you can have the bike. We won't charge you like yeah. a rental bike. Yeah. So she arrives with this bike. It was like an old hybrid mountain bike uh-huh. and it was... Like I'm not exactly that big, but it's it looked like I'd stolen my little brother's bike. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm coming into Bondi Beach with coverage, thing. and you're on the back. <laughs> but um, so you know these things happen. But um, it's that's all part of the experience mm-hmm. as well. Stuff mm-hmm. goes wrong invariably, and in a way, with some of the other stuff that I'm sure we'll get onto, um, it's nearly part of the attraction to yeah. go. Yeah. How am I gonna? Especially now, uh, now, now, once you know about this extra element that you just discovered in the first one, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the next one. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What's going to happen there? Yeah, and it's not like you don't, because people can talk about adventure trips and adventure is a, you know, somebody might decide to run a five kilometer run or a mm. 10 kilometer run. And that could be a big adventure. You know, it could mm. be someone maybe who hasn't run before or, you know, just mm-hmm. maybe a bit out of shape, hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't yeah. been doing so for a while. And that's brilliant. And then you can have people who take it to another extreme where mm. adventure might mean, you know, 
like yourself well yeah and be, and beyond <laughs> like beyond me i know of people who like have, would do things that you know i just i wouldn't even consider like i mean mm-hmm. it was i can't remember his name it was a french he's either french or french canadian he's a um he's a free soloist climber and he just mm-hmm. recently last year went up uh el capitan yes um, alex this is, this is like i don't i don't i don't remember his name but this is a big thing the el capitan i i i remember i was uh was it podcast and then there was a movie about all the history people who were yeah. who were climbing up El Capitan and what was the time and there was like yeah. a big culture of these rock climbers and like yeah 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 and this guy like so he did it Alex I can't remember his second name but he you know he, he soloed it so free mm-hmm. solos no ropes no nothing yeah. and he did it in like four hours like no one has ever actually done this before yeah. let alone yeah. do it so quickly it used to so. take days with people who were camping on the side of Alcantara yeah 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 spending night there and all that exactly well, and, now even, it's and, hours. Even, and even that is phenomenal so like mm-hmm. i think with adventure depending on whatever level you want to bring it to or push mm-hmm. it i think part of it for me is that a it needs to have for me now at least it has to have a little bit more meaning to it mm-hmm. as to the why and then also as well i think is there's always a chance that you won't succeed now for some people maybe that guy if he makes a mm-hmm. mistake he's dead mm-hmm. i mightn't bring it to that extreme mm-hmm. well i suppose maybe arguably sometimes but mm-hmm. sometimes i think with adventure with true adventure you don't know if you're going to make it and you know yeah. if something goes it's wrong interesting. it's interesting because uh, a couple of episodes back on the podcast i had a i had a, a lady uh he's she's running the um company called uh wild adventure way i think and they're kind of you know their idea is to allow people to book the adventure right and we obviously we started like hey caroline what's uh what's the adventure and this is she said the exact same thing anything that is like a some unknown like it might not happen you might not be able to do it yeah. till the end that's the adventure and like you yeah. said is the one guy is going to be like a 5k run or 5k cycle and yeah. he might not be able to do it yeah or something might happen or like i said you know oh uh, yeah i'm going to I'm going to climb El Capitan with no ropes. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. also might not happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the consequences. <laughs> consequences to that. Yeah. But that's, that's, uh, that's uh, actually very interesting that, that you, you kind of give the same definition of the adventure. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty about it because it's not up to me or anyone else to go, oh, that's an adventure or that's not an adventure. It's, mm-hmm. it's great. Whatever floats someone's boat, you know, mm-hmm. if they, if they, mm-hmm. if they like doing whatever it is yeah you know adventure yeah. racing climbing rowing it doesn't really matter like yeah i think it's it's uh that's it's nature is a nature is a good teacher oh absolutely i have one more question about the mm. australia cycle how how did you it was was the dealing with a dehydration and temperature an issue at all or because obviously that would be an issue if if you go through the like completely interior and you know no roadhouses or anything. But you're kind of were sticking to the kind of semi civilized areas, I guess. Is that the yeah? Like I mean, all the roads when I when I looked into doing this, the first thing I did was I I went online to see has it, who's done it. I'm presuming mm-hmm. someone has done it before, mm-hmm. and I remember I came across a website. And a guy had gone from Sydney to Perth mm-hmm. and he, I was reading his blog and stuff and he was like, next time I decide to cycle across a continent, maybe check the prevailing winds. Mm-hmm. The prevailing winds would be more west to east. Right. So, um, so when I when I looked at it, it was all on, on pave, you know, it was, it was mm-hmm. highway, it was road. Mm-hmm. Now when you say highway, a highway mm-hmm. out there in the Nullarbor is 
you know, it's just a normal road. Like mm-hmm. there's two lanes, one each way. Yeah, so right. it's but there's not, a tarmac it, on it. Yeah, yeah, there's oh, tarmacs. Okay. They're all all tarmac roads. Is there um, no there's like I, I picture in my head in Australia like a like an unpaved road outback road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could, I mean, it'd be an interesting trip to do, maybe to do something like that, but do it off road. Mm-hmm. You know, on a, mm-hmm. on a on a trail bike. But um, it was probably I did it in July, so it was their winter time, so mm-hmm. it was still warm enough. But I'd say. Um, the tiredness, so I would have probably done maybe about 150-ish a day, 150 mm-hmm. kilometers, and then take a day or two off for fundraising. Oh, okay, and, okay, and okay. So. so it wasn't like a day after day after day after no, day? No, you do. Sometimes, like say, going across to Nullarbor, you probably had seven to ten days of mm-hmm. more or less 200 kilometers a day where mm-hmm. you're just going, going, because there's mm-hmm. nothing in between. Mm-hmm. So um, it varied. And I also wanted to... You know, I, it took me 60 days to do it. Mm-hmm. I probably lost about two weeks when I got hit the first time. Mm. But having said that, you could do it much quicker. So it just depends. Yeah. Some people were like, oh, I want to break a record. I wanted to enjoy the experience too. Oh, yeah. So I think the thing was um, a bit of tired as my knee flared up. I, like, I remember cycling one day for it was only for a couple of hours, but I was cycling with one leg because the other leg was killing me. So, um, you know, or another day getting up out of bed and I remember I had a bit of a cold and I went out and it was just lashing rain, turned into hailstones. And I remember that day, like in the hailstones in Australia, they can be big enough, it's like little bullets that hit yeah. you. And I remember it was my sister's 30th birthday mm-hmm. uh, back in Ireland and I was standing under a tree and I rang her just to wish her happy birthday. And I think mm-hmm. it was nighttime back home. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, how's everything going? I was like, oh, it's great. And like, I was shivering <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. So there's sort of moments like that where you're like. Yeah, yeah, convincing. Like, yeah, it's great. It's know? it's tough. And as well, it's also, well, I've chosen to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, yeah, buck exactly. up and get on with it. Like. <laughs> exactly. Because this is this is this thing, like, like satisfaction from overcoming the adversity. Right. Yeah. This yeah. is this is what the oh yeah, I'm doing this. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you do get a bit of a I you know, I think I got a bit of a kick out of it in sort of those sort of moments going, Well, there's a part of me that comes alive in, mm. in those situations. Mm. Not always, but but I say probably not always. like you know, if you're standing there shivering, you're freezing, mm. it's not great. I suppose what I mean is that when you're out in the middle of nowhere and I remember it it's happened me a couple of times. I remember on the Atlantic trip um being underneath the boat scraping barnacles mm-hmm. i for whatever reason i just remember it was a tuesday mm-hmm. and you know i'm trying not to get myself hit by the boat as mm-hmm. it's getting tossed around the swell mm-hmm. and i was like oh, this is living this is you know <laughs> i'm this, you know this, I'm, this, is, this is this is having a go you know regardless of what happens so i think yeah I, yeah there's a part of that that i like but that's part of doing trips yeah. i think yeah Okay, you mentioned Atlantic trip. Is is that the is that the is that now it's the right moment to talk about this? Yeah, yeah. Because um, this is this is really the, the 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 story that I heard originally when we met when we when he said that, and it's like uh, I must admit it was surprise. Right here, here we come, and you're just coming with this completely like a outlandish, uh, not outlandish, but like wow, it's like so you actually row a boat. Through the Atlantic Ocean, yeah, with your girlfriend at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was. I was about to say it was one of those things. I don't know if it's if it's one of those things, but, um, yeah, it was actually after the Australian cycle. I I had been living in Australia for a while, and and I went traveling in different parts of the world after it, and mm-hmm. I was back in Ireland, um, maybe a year or so later, and there was a mate of mine was asking me about the Australian trip and we were having a few beers one night chatting mm-hmm. about it and mm-hmm. and Shane said to me afterwards, you know, he said, Do you fancy rowing across the Atlantic? And 
just really casual, <laughs> real matter of fact. And I said, that's interesting. But for some reason, I was sort of intrigued by it. So mm. we started to look into it. And at the time, uh, there was only two people in Ireland who had ever done it before. So we tracked them down. They were Eamon and Peter Kavanagh. They're two brothers. And, and they had done it about seven years earlier. So we tracked them down, went out, met them. And um, fast forward, maybe a couple of months, Shane decided for different reasons he, he wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. I had told my girlfriend, Tori, at the time, I told her about it. And her first reaction was, you're you're crazy. And Of course, that's a, that's a kind of understandable, understandable. understandable reaction. Then like. I said, oh, wait, now it's a race and there's teams from all over the world and 10 minutes later she was like oh i think i'd like to do it too so so <laughs> shane had pulled out so we said we'd we do it originally we were trying to get a team of four because mm-hmm. typically you'll do it in two or four or as a solo mm-hmm. um so it was a race that started in the canary islands um off the coast of, of west africa and you go across the mm-hmm. the atlantic finish in the caribbean so we mm-hmm. finished in antigua mm-hmm. so it's about a little over two and a half thousand miles and it's a simple enough idea in terms of you have a 23 foot wooden rowing boat. They're ocean rowing boats. So mm-hmm. there's a little cabin in it where you can sleep. Yeah. You put everything you need for two to three months on it. And you have a water desalinator to take yeah. the salt out of the seawater. Everything's powered with a little 12 volt battery. Can you, can you describe the boat a little bit more? Because when you when you say like, oh, it's a rowing boat, and then, then then most people have in their head like a boat like you go out fishing. Sure, so yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That that boat is actually suited for conditions in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you imagine, um, say, a small sailboat. So if you if you picture maybe a twenty twenty three foot sailboat, and let's just cut the top. Let's take the cabin off. Let's take the the mm. mast, everything off. So you have your hull there and mm. you've got storage space below. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's if you imagine, that's the start of it. <clears throat> then take a maybe a two-man tent and put mm-hmm. that at the end of it. And that's your, it's all plywood, marine plywood. Yeah. That's your cabin. So you have a yeah. cabin in there where you can, where you can sleep. Yeah. And then you've got two rowing stations. So again, just imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, imagine like a rowing machine in a gym. Yeah. So it's a sliding seat setup. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you have two, um, you have two, two rowing stations, and, and even if you look at boats that people might see, people out, you know, the Olympics mm-hmm. or, or world yeah. championships rowing, it's the same mechanism as in it's a sliding seat, yeah. um, and it's sculling. So you have an oar in both hands. Yeah. You have two oars. Yeah. Um, and then you've got it's a heavy boat, so you've probably got, you know, it's probably ton and a half, two ton. Mm. You know, when it's fully loaded. Yes. So you've got. You've got. We were talking about this before we started. That you 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 try and plan for. Okay, what's our sort of passage plan? What do we need on board? So, you think of all your food, all your gear, your navigation, which was actually mm-hmm. pretty like it was a handheld GPS. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, some charts, um, your water desalinator, a backup one in case that mm-hmm. stops working, which it did mm-hmm. when we were out on the trip. Then you've got things like um, your sea anchor, which is like a yeah. big parachute which yeah if, so it's 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 called like a drift drift anchor or yeah it's, it's 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 slightly different so you know the way you have little drogues a mm-hmm. drogue would look like a sort of a windsock that you might see mm-hmm. at, at an airport yeah um and you can use those you can throw those off the back of the boat sometimes they'll what they'll do is if you imagine if you're getting hit by big swell the, mm-hmm. the most dangerous thing for you being out there is that if you end side up on the swell yeah it's kind flip, of flip mm-hmm. flip you over so you always want to be sort of perpendicular to the swell yeah. 
So in rough conditions where you're getting bounced around a bit, you might use um, a small drogue. You mm-hmm. might use just even a, a thick line of rope mm-hmm. that'll just help you keep your stern sort of yeah. in as well. Yeah. So a sea anchor then is is a much larger one where if the if the conditions change and you're getting pushed backwards, so you physically can't row into some conditions and the wind, yeah. if it changes, you're just getting pushed backwards. Yeah. So you throw a sea anchor out, which is it's like a big parachute. And what it does is if you imagine... You've got your boat in front of you here. You've mm-hmm. got a 40, 50 meter line coming off the, the edge of the sea anchor. So that goes into the water and it opens up. And when it opens up, water obviously rushes yeah. into it. So it just it's like an anchor. It holds you because you can't use a traditional ground anchor because at times you've three, four, five, six kilometers. You're probably, I think it was yeah. up to about five kilometers deep. So, yeah, you know, you're, 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 <laughs> you're not using an this anchor is, there. This is interesting because this is pretty specialized design of the rowing sea going rowing boat yeah is there so how it start how it start how so how humanity came to developing rowing boat is it was it like a it started as a sport or is it, was it or is it rooted in some traditional fishing practices like how how it came to be you mean this style of boat this, or yeah or, this style yeah. but this type of boat like you know you wouldn't think like oh if if we if you go in the ocean you go with a you know sailboat or yeah. whatever so how it came to development of this type of the boat yeah it's a good question well i think it, if you go back to um it was two it was two norwegian guys were actually the first to to row across the atlantic this was in i might get my dates wrong was the late 19th century um it could have been it could have been our early 20th century Mm -hmm. um george samuelson i think and arbo or harbo i think was the second Mm -hmm. i I can't remember it's been a while since i looked at Mm -hmm. this but um they would have done it in an open rowing boat so literally you know, an open, it was like an open dory, I think, style right. boat. So this is like, you know, forget about what we did. Like yeah, what these yeah, guys did yeah. was you'd know shelter. So people were tougher back then. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Um, so they would have, they would would have been the first people to do it. And then it was 1965 or 66 when um, a guy called Shay Blythe and John Ridgway mm-hmm. were the first people of sort of modern day times, I believe, mm-hmm. to actually do this. And again, they did it in an open dory where you know you'd you'd row in two hour shifts so like mm-hmm. you might if we were doing it mm-hmm. so you might row two or three hours mm-hmm. i'll rest mm-hmm. then i row and you go so you do that 24 hours a day so mm-hmm. you, you constantly want the boat moving mm-hmm. so like when they would have done it i mean you know they would have probably just crawled under a bit of tarp and that was yeah. their shelter um yeah. and then i suppose in the late 80s i think it was early early to mid 80s um you know it was actually Shea Blythe himself who would have set up um, what was called, the, I think it was called the Challenge Business. Mm-hmm. And they organized the first transatlantic rowing race, which was okay. in 97. So uh, by that point, the evolution, I think, at design had yeah. gone, had moved on, that there was cabins were being built. The yeah. big thing with these boats is that they're designed to self-right. Yes. So if they flip, they, they'll oh, come back. But there's a lot of instances and circumstances where they won't self-right. Mm-hmm. And that's where... You know, people have been killed doing it. Um, fortunately, not. It's kind of a dangerous endeavor to, to to go through the Atlantic, even on a on a sailboat. <laughs> yeah, the rowing boat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of it. it you appreciate. It, I think for me, anyway, I can't speak for anyone else. It humbles me because I realize how insignificant I am in terms of Mother Nature calls the shots. So if she wants yeah. to, I remember a friend of mine said to me when we finished it. 
said, oh, how does it feel like to have conquered the Atlantic? And I said... Uh, they didn't feel like you conquered anything. I didn't conquer anything. <laughs> I said, she she let us pass and she could take us yeah. at any moment if she wanted us. So um, so the, I suppose the design, to come back to your question, the design of the boats did evolve and it still, to this day, even has evolved mm. uh, even more with positioning of cabins has yeah. changed. And some but you sort of answered the question that this... This this type of boat hasn't started and then evolved through the traditional practice that was aimed at people keeping people alive. It was it was started as a sport slash adventure endeavor from the very beginning. So those those type of boats never had like a practical a use, if you like, or function. Yeah, I think not really, because I mean, I think you're right. Like people would have used boats, safety boats. You know, when like I mean, if you go back to the likes of Tom Crean and and mm-hmm. the Antarctic and and probably the greatest story of human survival that i've ever come mm-hmm. across was was their their voyage in 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 their little boats when when they got trapped with the ice so i mean like that's there was it was probably never the smartest way to travel but mm-hmm. i think i suppose maybe it's human nature we've a, we've mm-hmm. a curiosity to right how how can things be maybe pushed or or you know if you take something like i don't know take like an iron man or a triathlon mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. people swam before people ran before people cycled before mm-hmm. but you know, originally people cycled to get from A to B. They yeah. didn't do it to necessarily race each yeah. other. and Yeah, exactly. You know, all that stuff evolved. So um, it was maybe human nature. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so you, so this is, we have a picture of the boats, right? Mm. And you have this idea that you're going you're gonna to roll. So what went into the preparation of the, of the entire Yeah, trip? there was a lot, I suppose. We were, we were fortunate in that Eamon and Peter agreed to let us use their boat that they had used, mm-hmm. you know, seven or eight years beforehand. It needed a bit of work and modification and updating mm-hmm. and stuff, but um, that was a real help. And we were, a large part of our prep was, because a lot of people were telling us we were crazy and we were stupid and we were going to get killed. Well, there's, and, there's always, high, you know, yeah. you always get that. And I, look, I can, to, an, to a point, I can understand because... You know, up to this point, I'd never rowed before. Now, rowing mm-hmm. isn't, you know, it's a relatively straightforward thing to pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the more I've done these sort of things, are, are not even just these things, even in life, if someone says, ah, you're crazy or that's mad or stupid or whatever, I nearly, I nearly, that nearly serves for me as a good compass point to go, I could be onto something I here. Could be you on, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's a good <laughs> so um, I think if someone says that, it's like, oh, maybe maybe i'm sort of on to something here um but um so yeah like we would have spent a lot of time with Eamon and peter and just just learning from them um mm. is, uh, trying to absorb as much as we could to learn from their experience um then practically speaking we would have done you know a sea survival course first mm. aid at sea okay we did our our, our shore-based yacht master course which was navigate you know learning how to navigate using the stars mm-hmm. so it was a really good experience because you had to sort of plan for you've to you've to sort of take full ownership for when you leave out there, even though it was a race, and in our year there was twenty six boats in the race, but within pretty much within a day, you don't see anyone else because everyone's yeah. going at a slightly different speed, a different heading, and when you're so low in the water, you can only see for oh, yeah. a mile or two. Oh, yeah. So it was. Um, I remember w- the boat was down in Arklow, and we were living in Dublin, coming up and down to train, and mm-hmm. and then we um. Got to a point probably about six, seven months before we were due to leave and, and we just needed to get the boat up to Dublin, but we didn't have a trailer. Mm-hmm. And like we were putting every penny we had into this and we were obviously mm-hmm. working full time. So we didn't have a trailer. We couldn't afford to buy one at the time. 
So we said, look, we'll just row it up. Um, and so it was a 24-hour trip to <laughs> row it up from Arklo. And it was really, when I think about it now, I think psychologically and even emotionally, that was the cutting of the umbilical cord because mm-hmm. up to then, every time we went down to Arklo, you know, Eamon might say, okay, we're going to stay in the river today or it's a bit rough or we're going to head out to mm-hmm. sea or we're not. So we didn't plan as much ourselves. Whereas for this, mm-hmm. and Eamon was brilliant because he said, you know, I want you to put together a passage plan. How are you, you know, what do you need to bring? You think of everything. And even when we took the charts out, I'll never forget there's, I don't know, is it maybe 10, 15 miles north of Arklo? Um, there's a rock called Wolf Rock. And depending on when you go, sometimes it's exposed on the tide. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not, obviously okay. depending on the timing of the tide. Um, so it was just things like that. He said, I want you guys to plan this. Yeah. So which we did. And we, I remember we, uh, we were getting onto the boat and loading the gear up and Eamon says to me, he says, oh yeah, he said, um, if you get into any trouble, you know, over the next, whatever, 24 hours and you have to call for help, he says, you can forget about using this boat in the Atlantic. He says, if you can't navigate this stretch and make your way up to Dublin, he yeah. said, you've no business being in the Atlantic. <laughs> so I remember my, my yeah. heart sort of sunk when he said it and I was yeah. like, actually, no, take a minute, uh-huh. take a breath. Uh-huh. He's absolutely right. Yes. And and just own it and, and make sure you own mm-hmm. it. So, you know, we, we, we I remember, you know, we, we'd thought we'd no problems, and but we got up the next day and I was absolutely knackered. Mm-hmm. And this is only after 24 hours. And like, you've got the excitement and the buzz of doing this yeah. because, oh, it's our first time and you're rowing at night time. And, and where you were rowing also in two hour shifts? Yeah, we, mm-hmm. at the start, we rowed together and then we played around with shifts and, and, okay. uh, but when we got into into uh, Dunleary, we were very lucky. Um, the lovely man there called Hal Bleakley, and he had uh, allowed he'd given us a little berthing spot in in mm-hmm. Dunleary in the marina mm-hmm. for the couple of months, um, oh. and, and you know at, at no cost, which was great. So mm-hmm. when we rode in there and, and got off, and I was like, I'm pretty shattered. This is going to be <laughs> one <laughs> long long race. So and again, where where the race was when the, where the race was starting? So it started in the Canary Islands. Lagomera okay. is one of the Canary Islands. How did you get the boat to Canary Islands? So we shipped it out. Originally, okay. we had ideas of, oh God, could we even row it out? And we were like, yeah, that was yeah. that was that was in the back of my head. I was yeah. like, also row it out there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's um, it's strange because like it you the time flies really by. And in trips that I've organized since then, it's always it's a bit like nearly cramming for an exam you're doing mm-hmm. as much as you can you're trying to get maybe a couple of corporate sponsors to help mm-hmm. with the funding mm-hmm. we were doing this for we we were doing it for a charity to raise money for concerns so mm-hmm. you, you're trying to organize different events and stuff so it's yeah. a lot it's really full on and in a way it's nearly like when we shipped the boat out and we spent maybe two weeks out there beforehand mm-hmm. just with sort of last minute prep and stuff but it's nearly a relief to go finally you know, I know a year and a half later i know this is this is what you what you what you often hear when you when you're reading books about war that that the worst is this anticipation for soldiers going to combat and and this fear and all that right, yeah. and once the gates open or whatever that is and even if you if you if you're reading <clears> about the d day once they in and you're going it's it's a sense of relief yeah, it's a sense of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in it now. It's we're in it now. Now it's finally happening. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Because I remember thinking when we rode out to the, all the teams were called out individually and we're sort of bobbing around the harbour and mm-hmm. a gun goes off and that's the start line. And mm-hmm. I remember saying to Tori uh, before we left, we're just sort of all sort of bobbing around. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I said, are you nervous? She's like, no, not really. Look at you. And I was like, no, I was just excited just to get going. And yeah, finally. it was also nice to be around people as in the other teams who had gone through a lot of what we went through and 
mm-hmm. you know, one of the hardest things was my family's reaction to it, which was I completely understood. They were yeah. just really against it. And um, and I get that. I probably get it more now, being a few years older. But it was lovely to be around people who, who they were committed to this as well. And I can remember a conversation I had with uh, with Garod. Garod Towie was an Irish guy who was mm-hmm. in another boat doing it beforehand and and it was weird the way sometimes you'd you'd come across people not just criticizing you but Mm -hmm. there was there was nearly a bit of venom in it or anger and it's like you know and i've I've had more of this in in subsequent trips but i remember gag said to me one day he was like like at what point do people lose the ability to dream or to try stuff and Mm -hmm. just have a go like and it's it was lovely just to be around you're nearly around i suppose for want of a better word, fellow dreamers, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was nice. But but once you get going, then it's it's uh, yeah, it's excitement, and you know the first couple of like I mean I was seasick after three hours, and I hadn't been seasick at all in training. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I was yeah, lucky. That, with, that, that, hap- that, oh, sometimes ha- that sometimes happens. We were really lucky. Like I mean, Eamon and Peter said it to us that in the past, teams have you know someone gets sick, mm-hmm. they pull the plug, they panic, and oh, I'm done, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. So we were lucky with with the lads because they said look if it does happen you might be sick for a few days but it'll pass mm-hmm. and like those first i think it was about two days where it was just you know getting sick rowing yeah trying to get sleep sick it was horrible but it did pass and we knew, yeah you know we knew it would um it's fascinating because like again like we we had a quick chat before before we started recording i was saying that in a, again a few episodes back um uh Thomas McIntyre was uh, in a podcast who was cycled through the United States and I was cycling through the through Africa and the, you know the the similarities what you're what you're saying is like all going on the like the obstacles like the family not being happy and you're doing that and then you think like yeah I'm onto something it's like it's it's fascinating that that the same same pattern kind of repeats yeah, itself yeah. In, in, in that. and I suppose it's tough like I mean I know which like if I think of the family side where it's probably not nor like I remember I'll never forget I um I asked family and friends and Tori did the same for me to mm-hmm. to um put together a goodie bag of letters that we were going to bring mm-hmm. so I organized it for Tori she did the same for me and the premise of it was put it like if I asked Tori's family and friends I said write in it whatever you want but the idea is that this is going to be a pick me up so if Tori's having a bad day I'll give her one of the letters so you can say whatever you want in it. And I had, um, I read, sort of, I looked at all of her letters, oh, God, that's a really good one, or that could mm-hmm. be really good if we mm-hmm. had a really bad day. And I remember I was having a bad day once. Oh, right. and, did you, did you uh, read all those letters? I But I would have read her ones before. Like, so I, I, wouldn't, oh, okay. I wouldn't have read my ones. Like, yeah, yeah, so yeah, she yeah, would have had but mine. You, but you knew what, what she had in her. Yeah, I sort of thought, well, God, if she's really having a bad day, this could be a great letter. Or oh, okay, okay. So you you had, you had get to choose which one is it for each exactly. occasion. How bad are you today? It's, you know, eight out of ten. <laughs> this letter. For you. Okay, we're going for the big one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, my dad did a letter and... We subsequently wrote a book about this trip, and I remember mm-hmm. said, "I said, Dad, I'd like to put that letter in the book mm-hmm. because when we wrote the book, we tried to give as much as you can through a book to hopefully create an experience that someone feels like they're on the trip with you." Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of people say to me, "Someone because God, I felt like I was out there," mm-hmm. which is exactly what we'd hoped great. we could do as much as you can, mm-hmm. you know, through a book. And the letter um, was just—it was just so touching, and I read it and. It was very uplifting, and I broke down in tears when I read mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I could get a sense how it was difficult for my family 
because it's not normal for them maybe to support a child yeah. going out doing something that's potentially quite dangerous. Rolling um, through the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, and I, I suppose I understood that. So the family thing is hard. And I, I remember saying to my, my, my parents at the time, I said, look, I would, I would give my life for you, hmm. but I can't live it for you, you know, and... That's that's a there's a difference there, and I I think nice, and it's nice nice quote nice sentence yeah it's it's um I don't know I think I hope I mean like I I'm, I got married recently I hope um you know if Colette and I have kids that I hope I I sort of allow them the the mm-hmm. the space and the freedom and the confidence to just go after whatever it is they want and I'm sure. <laughs> <Aching from that. laughs> I know that it's going to come back at yeah. some point. I I heard that the when when you're becoming a father, it's like a, there are physical changes in your brain. You you kind of like physically stuff is changing in the brain. It functions differently. So. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because the brain is so malleable that you know I was just saying to you before, and I just finished a, a psychology degree, and um, it's so interesting actually learning more about the brain mm-hmm. and, and how malleable it is and how mm-hmm. we can form new neural pathways in our brain and and you know when you yeah. talk about people changing habits and trying mm-hmm. to change behaviors and and mm-hmm. you know the brain has these synapses and these connections mm-hmm. between neurons in our brain that, that you can form new ones so yeah. the brain is so malleable it's it's um, i've no doubt potentially you know when when right. when a father and probably even more so a mother <laughs> gives mm-hmm. birth yeah there's a there's a lot of a lot of things going on there yeah so we'll just wait for it <laughs> <laughs> watch this space exactly but yeah i know i can i can definitely understand that and, and in subsequent trips where i've done them with you know people who have kids mm-hmm. and the kids are at a school going age mm-hmm. where you know they can hear things from other people about their dad say who's going mm-hmm. away in a trip yeah. oh he's crazy and he's going to get killed and you know yeah. the kids might only be six seven eight old enough mm-hmm. to know what's happening um but not necessarily you know old enough to maybe have a, a full sense of how yeah. careful dad is being yeah. or whatever yeah so so, th- th- so this is a good a good one because i have a question now for you there was a recently and I don't remember a name. I, I probably butchered the story, but I but I give a sentiment. There was a there was a guy who was uh, climbing mountains. I don't remember whether it was Mount Everest or whatever it was, right? And he got killed, right? And he got killed. And he was he was known for 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 these you know adventure extreme trips in the mountains and so sure. on and so on. And uh, and obviously he he you know ran out of luck. Um, unfortunately, passed away while doing this. And he left young wife and two young children right and obviously there was a lot of comments saying like oh he shouldn't be doing that he's responsible now for the kids she he shouldn't be you know go out go after that he should like and um to be honest i don't know i i don't i i don't wonder what you think about it because one one part is like well yes you took on this big responsibility and you're mm-hmm. responsible and you need to provide, you know, for that family and so on and so on. On the other hand, obviously someone who does things like that, this is so deep mm. in his soul for the one of a better description mm. that like, why would like, is it okay for him to either not have the family because he does this thing or give up something that clearly fuels him and 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 drives him mm. because of i i i kind of can understand both sure both yeah. things what's your what's your take on that it's a really good question and i think um 
I think I suppose that I'd premise this by saying that everyone, like life is like, we all know life is so precious and it can be taken away from us in an instant. So I think we all have our own choice as to how we live life. Hmm. And, and I don't think how I choose to live my life or how you, you, you choose to live your life, they might be different. I don't think there's a right or wrong, but hmm. I suppose my thought on that would be if we, if we play that out, actually what you've described, and if we talk about that climber, do you and know that? Do you know that climate? No, I, I can't. I, 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 I can't remember the the name. I, I don't know. I haven't. I, I mean, I suppose climbers die probably yeah, regularly, yeah. but yeah, 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 um, yeah. unfortunately, no. I thought that because there was kind of like a big big deal out of that, and I obviously yeah, don't yeah. remember. Anyway, um, but if if you t- if you sort of play that out, so if we take, um, I'll give you I'll give you a real life example, mm-hmm. which is a teammate of mine, a good very good friend of mine, Kevin Vallely. Mm-hmm. Kevin has done. Kevin is mid fifties now, and he's mm-hmm. done adventures all over the world, and he did the trip that we, we might chat about later on through the Arctic or the first mm-hmm. time I was up there. And Kevin has faced this question and he, you know, I, I can tell you sort of his insight on it as well mm-hmm. in a second, but I can look at Kevin, I can go, this feeds his soul. He's an mm-hmm. absolutely doting father. He loves his two girls to bits and his wife. And this brings him alive and it's part of who he is as a human being. Yeah. So if I think of myself I would be similar in that I, this there's a part of my soul just comes alive being out here. And it doesn't have to be in the Atlantic. It could be, you know, hiking up in the Dublin mountains or something, mm-hmm. you know, like the I challenge, could, the adventure. I just love being outside. And there's a part of me that just, it's just, it's important. I think I'm a, I think I'm a better human being mm-hmm. when I'm incorporating this into my life. So if we play this out and let's say, I'll use me as an example. So let's say if I did have kids mm-hmm. right now and I appreciate when you have kids, things probably change. Like it's probably, a, mm-hmm. it's hard to do a what if. Yeah. But if I decide to never do any of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. again, I might decide to do that anyway. I might just mm-hmm. go, right, I have enough of that and move on mm-hmm. and that's all cool. But let's say if I decide, oh, I have kids now, I can't be doing that. and I, That's mm-hmm. too risky. And as a part of my soul, as a part of my spirit that just, Ghost, it's just, just it's ghost. gone mm-hmm. so how am i with my kids am i you know the best version of myself around my kids yeah. because i've let that part of me die out completely yeah. you don't want to become like a bitter jerk in the in the house in the family because you cannot do yeah all these and, things. and then do you do you potentially then go well even it could be at a subconscious level am i now harboring elements of resentment if i'm saying to exactly. myself well i'm not going to do that because and for mm-hmm. under i don't want to put myself at risk mm-hmm. and my kids and mm-hmm. my wife etc and that may be one option and that mm-hmm. can be you know that could be okay it could be fine mm-hmm. i would argue in that situation your kids your wife the people you're around they're not seeing the full you they're not seeing the best of you if you go around the other way then and you mm-hmm. look at someone maybe who who does keep pursuing mm-hmm. that to whatever extent and when they're with their kids and when they're with their family they're you know they're their full selves and they're they're yeah. giving the kids everything and if you ask me I'd much prefer to have 50 years or 60 years at that versus mm-hmm. 90 years of yeah. Ah, well, I, I let that one go and I, I didn't go after that element mm-hmm. and does it come with risk if someone's a mountain climber yeah absolutely but i think mm-hmm. i think if you know i know kevin has said this to me before that he said i would be a hypocrite if i'm saying to my daughters go out follow your dreams live the life you want and if i really want to do these things and i'm not mm-hmm. i'm sort of i'm a complete hypocrite so yeah. you know i think yeah. it's a it's a choice everyone has yeah. to make um yeah. but that would be my take on it you mm-hmm. know my perspective i don't think there's a right or wrong 
and I think oh yeah of course like every every circumstances and everything is different yeah like each each case is different okay what's the book what's the title of the book and where where listeners can, can yeah so the book we we published it in Ireland um that's good a few years ago now uh it was called uh, little lady one man big ocean so that was published here in Ireland and then when I moved I lived I spent six seven years in Canada mm-hmm. it was published in Canada under the title crossing the swell so okay. that's still the That's first the same book same book yeah so okay. the first book the irish version sort of we did one print run and sold out and that was it mm-hmm. um whereas crossing the swell is still you can get it on amazon and stuff so it's okay. still, still there okay. yeah we yeah. put the link to the book yeah yeah the, yeah the show cool. notes. all right very good very good okay so so then uh, i'm sure there was like a plenty of of uh exciting stories why you were how long how long again how long it took to, to the atlantic yeah it was 85 days. 85 days. Yeah. So right. we had sort of originally... quicker than I thought. I was, I thought was well, to be honest, we had originally thought... We thought we were aiming for around 60. We thought based oh, on really? how fast we row, okay. we thought if we get semi-lucky or if we don't get too battered by the weather, mm-hmm. hopefully maybe about two months. Excuse me. But um, yeah, we did usually it, you, you from about June to October... It's now probably June to December is the hurricane season in the mm-hmm. mid-Atlantic. Climate change has, cha- has changed the patterns, mm. you know, relatively significantly now at this stage. Mm. So you get storms out of season or, or out of the season has changed nearly. Yeah. So you typically get about 12 to 15 tropical storms throughout the Atlantic in that part. So that's tropical storm is sort of one grade down from a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And out of those, you might get six seven might be you know six to eight five to eight so mm-hmm. it would go on to be full-blown hurricanes the year that we did it there was 31 tropical storms um and i think there was 14 or 15 hurricanes so it was um in one way when you're out in an ocean and you get 30 40 foot swell that's what happens out in an ocean like it's not abnormal mm-hmm. yeah um and you'll get storms and stuff and like if we experience storms which we have obviously in ireland mm-hmm. in recent times we're on dry land. We're not out in an ocean. <laughs> it's mm. obviously very different. But that's what happens. So we had hope for 60 days. We got a lot of bad storms. And like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. there was 26 boats in this race and nine went down at sea. Mm-hmm. So um, oh. it was a rough, it was a, it was a tough year. Um, mm-hmm. And we just... By went down, you mean like uh, what happened to people? Um, were, they, were they killed? or they... Mixture, nobody died. Thanks be to God. Oh. No, nobody died. Okay. Um, so boats capsized. Some boats mm-hmm. literally got picked up by waves and smashed to pieces um oh. so it was uh yeah it was it was various different a couple of the boats were actually really close to antigua uh, mm-hmm. at the finish when this happened um there was the, actually the boat i mentioned the other irish team um they were the first boat actually they went down and i think we were 30 or 40 days into it um wow. and they their boat got picked up by a wave and it flipped but it, it literally it the cabin came sort of crashed onto the surface of the water and just smashed up into pieces and is that just a bad luck or is it like a mistake of uh, Uh, operators it's it's luck you you need you need a lot of luck i mean the two guys uh gags and curon extremely skilled i mean grode was a former world champion rower and he's been to a couple of olympics like really really good guys they're Mm -hmm. solid knew what they were doing um just a little bit unlucky They, they um the way their boat was actually built um the they had a drogue out which i think was perfectly you know normal and, and, and the thing to, to do in the situation they were in i remember talking to them afterwards about it um and just by virtue of where the drogue was connected to the sides of the cabin 
I think it might have been a slightly weaker point, but I mean the boat was built. Okay. So it just mean when when it pulled on on, okay. on the boat as it, as it came over, mm-hmm. it was pulling. So they the had this point. like like oh I would do this thing differently, and maybe we we wouldn't end up the way. Well, we I think up. I think to be fair for them, um, you know, none of us are boat builders, so mm-hmm. you wouldn't be necessarily aware of that. I think. Um, no, they, they didn't really do anything wrong per se. I think you, sometimes, you know, I'll give you another example of one of the boats, a couple of the boats capsized, but they had hatches open. Mm-hmm. So if water floods into the hatches, if you have the hatch in the cabin open, yeah. which you often would because it'd be very hot mm-hmm. um, and water goes into it, then the boat isn't going to sell fright. So when yeah. you get tired and it's easy, I suppose... You make the little you, mistakes. You make little mistakes and they're understandable because... You're hallucinating with sleep deprivation. You're mm-hmm. tired. You're sore. You've been out there for months. You know you're you're pretty banged up at times. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when it's easier, it's easy now, maybe in the comfort of where we're sitting, to go. I wonder should someone have done something different. But when you're out there, it is tough to sometimes make the right calls. And I remember with that mm-hmm. particular thing, as we got closer to Antigua, and we we had a satellite phone with us, so we were getting yeah. text messages, and we knew boats mm-hmm. had gone down. Yeah. Um, and I remember we just had this agreement that if you want to, if you're in the cabin, the hatch stays closed. And if you were in it with the hatch closed, it was like a sauna. Mm-hmm. So when you finish your shift and you maybe just want to lie down, we said, okay, you can lie down on deck if you need to, but the hatch has to stay closed. Now you could, yeah, you knew in certain, yeah, you knew if yeah. conditions were fine, but if it was just anyway picking yeah. up a bit, um, because I suppose we were benefiting from maybe yeah. having heard about what other people happened. So yeah. it's just things like that. If you make the best decision you can and if you try and keep making just err on the side of caution because yeah. like outside looking in it can appear crazy and like you guys are wild and you're nuts and blah 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 mm. whereas when you're actually in it you're trying to make a series of good decisions oh you're very very you're, you're uh, more kind of you're and you realize how exposed and how vulnerable you are yeah um so there was definitely yeah there was a few hairy moments all right when you know we'd, we'd one instance at night time and i can still remember we had a little compass in front of us so mm-hmm. and there was a little light over it and when you're rowing you can't keep it on a certain heading so you're just you're trying to keep it maybe in a bit of a, a section yeah and by and large if the if the ocean is pushing you whatever way that's the way you're going yeah um in a rowing boat um so we um it was really rough and it was dark and no moon and I remember it was raining. I, I was rowing. I, I was struggling even just to see. So the compass was only maybe a foot or two in front of me. And it was wild and there was waves coming from different sides. And I remember that night, it was very few nights that we did. Sometimes if you're getting pushed backwards, you just have to throw the sea anchor out and say, look, we can't, we can't mm-hmm. row into that. But your tolerance level for rough weather improved as you went on. So what week one, what might have seemed crazy yeah, was fine the, 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 two or three weeks right. into it. <laughs> but this night in particular it was just I said, God, this is this is just madness. So we battened down the hatches and mm-hmm. you know, so you're getting tossed around like I, I said to someone recently, it's like being in a, a washing machine, but I've never been in a washing machine, so yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know what it's what I imagine it would be like. So <laughs> we um yeah, that was that was a night where I thought just get through, please let us get through tonight and mm-hmm. I'll be very happy. Right. So there was a few a few moments where yeah, things have got a bit. Have you guys come across any wildlife, any encounters with the with the marine wildlife, whales or? Yeah, we did. Not, uh, I think we probably thought we'd have more. We had a couple of um, couple of mako sharks. Oh. Um, very sort of brief. Sort of, they were beside mm-hmm. the boat for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we had about three days or four days before the end. A mate of mine had given me uh, a little book mm-hmm. with sort of pictures of marine life. And mm-hmm. it just might be sort of cool if you see stuff, mm-hmm. you might know what it is. Mm-hmm. And about three days or so before the end, I, I was rowing and really calm conditions. And I sort of look over, I'd say only eight, seven or eight feet uh, off to the side of the boat. And I see this massive whale and it was just starting to sort of surface mm-hmm. uh, and it was a sperm whale i think mm-hmm. and it just came right up and i was it was bigger than the boat yeah huge and shout at tory two of us came out we we're just like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> and we just stood there for i think it was probably only a couple of minutes and it just drifted back behind us mm-hmm. came across the swell and just disappeared again and we were just we were so mesmerized by it. i didn't take one picture of it yeah <laughs> i remember yeah. That, which in a way i thought was sort of nice because you yeah, you stayed in the moment. You focus on yes, exactly. You experience rather yeah. than document. Um, <laughs> and it was um, ah, oh, that like that was really that was pretty cool. Um, we saw a uh, sea sea turtle as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you had you different different bits of marine life. But yeah, and you said that you're you were getting under the boat and kind of scraping off uh, the, the what's the name of the, the, barnacles. the barnacles? Yeah, yeah. It's um. So wh- with with stuff like this, you'll get because we're moving so slow. Um, so we had anti-foul, which mm-hmm. you'd put on the bottom of the boat to yeah. sort of stop barnacles from growing. Now, if you're around the coast, you know, you could have that on. That could do you for a season. Whereas out there, um, I, I'm no expert, but I remember talking to someone about this. And the foul is quite strong. So you'll get um, barnacles will just attach themselves to yeah. the boat and you're moving at quite slow speeds. And we knew this could happen. And I think the first week or two, I would have gone under a few times to check and there was nothing mm-hmm. there. And then as we got on, I'd say we were about four weeks, maybe five weeks in, and we were going really slow and it was killing us because you'd be like, you know, you, you might be doing a knot, you know, a mile, mile and a half an hour. And it's mm. like, it's it's backbreaking stuff at times. And um, we sort of assumed it was because of the, the rough weather and sometimes hard yeah. to even catch an oar. And, yeah. and it probably was to a point, but um, Tori noticed... Uh, as the boat was bobbing around, these like it was like big wigs of barnacles mm-hmm. attached to the side of the boat. Mm-hmm. So I went underneath, but um, <laughs> uh, we we had gotten two text messages a couple of days beforehand about shark attacks, mm-hmm. and then you know, boat twenty eight shark attack crew. Okay, how how did shark attack the boat? So we at the time I that was as much info as I had. So I thought, oh, the, where the people were in the water. No, they were on the boat, but like sometimes sharks would get curious and they might come oh. a bit closer and they might sort of ram the boat. Okay. Um, and this had happened apparently with one team, and they breached one of the one of the uh, one of the sort of uh, sections underneath the hu- in the oh. hull. But they were they, they they were all fine. But that's it's I mean I, I'm no su- shark expert. That's but surprising. That's um, I I haven't you know I haven't mm-hmm. uh, I that's what what I knew at the time was right. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I remember I I harnessed my I tied a rope around my leg. And I harnessed it onto the boat. And I, mm-hmm. you know, so you just take a deep breath, scrape, come back up, yeah. take another breath. I said, Tori, if you see anything with a fin, just pull the rope. Mm-hmm. So the first, I'd say five, 10 minutes of this, all I'm thinking of and all I have in my head is the Jaws music. And do you remember in that, in Jaws when, when the, um, when, when he was coming and you'd see fish scurrying away yeah, really fast. Yeah. And of course, underneath the boat, there was loads of fish coming in, scurrying, yes. picking off the barnacles and going yeah. away. So I'm like, I'm yeah. paranoid. <laughs> after about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, mm. that was grand. That was okay. And um, I'd say five, 10 minutes later, Tori pulls the rope. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I nearly soiled myself. I was like, oh shit. 
jumped up on the boat on the deck and I was like, where is it, where is it? I'm out of breath at this stage. Mm. And she points to a zebra fish that I'd say was about that size, like six inches. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I, there's no shark. I just wanted you to see the pretty <laughs> fish. I swear to God, I nearly threw her in after me. <laughs> um so with the barnacles like it was amazing though that was a bit of a nearly a bit of a turning point Mm -hmm. for us that our speeds improved Mm -hmm. i'd say they nearly doubled because the barnacles were creating a huge drag and like like even even if you see like a sailing racing yacht sailing racing yachts there's the same problem yeah 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 yeah. need to kind of make sure they maintain the absolutely yeah 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 so it was um yeah that was and then from then on i'd go under maybe every week or 10 days just to scrape off stuff yeah. but um that was that was a fairly all you know you put all the, you, you know people talk about the extra the marginal gains and the extra one mm-hmm. percent mm-hmm. and all that i mean that was that was a pretty big one for us it was, it was 10 percent <laughs> <laughs> and what place did you guys finished we finished um we were 13th i think mm-hmm. out of 26 oh. um and i, I someone asked me that not too long ago and i and they were like oh that's not bad mm-hmm. and i mean we had like you know did it really mattered at all it, at it, the end it didn't it really i mean nobody like did you so, have this like damn it i thought we we're gonna be third at least no what well, was it like doesn't matter i'm just happy we're here we it's interesting because actually at the start like i mean there was you know there was rowers in this race some of them had won like james cracklin was a row he'd run like two or three gold medals in the olympic mm-hmm. games so we knew there was world champ was some high class rowers in this. Mm-hmm. Now that's all well and good if you're on a river. It's a bit different if you're on an ocean. Yeah, and it's and it's eighty days. Yeah. Now that being said, obviously if someone has rowed to that level all their life, it's gonna help. So originally all we wanted to do was to finish as high up as we could. Mm-hmm. And I'd say a couple of weeks into it, um, I remember I think it was Tori's aunt was looking at other teams' mm-hmm. websites and mm-hmm. she'd sent a couple of texts through saying, Oh yeah, people don't even care about the race now. Everyone's really struggling and it's mm-hmm. like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. And I that changed. I was like, for me, even leading up to that point, it was like, Yeah, we want to finish this high up, but it's actually sort of irrelevant. Like yes. you know, if you put twenty people in a room and you know, they've all rode across the Atlantic. It's very few people who probably ask you, where, you know, where'd you mm. come? But yeah. we probably, to be fair, to be honest with you, we probably came 13th because we finished ahead of a few teams, but nine of the teams went down at sea. So, <laughs> so we, I suppose we leapfrogged them. Anyway. Oh, yeah, that, that also counts. <laughs> By virtue <laughs> of the fact that we finished. Very good, very good. Um, Paul, listen, uh, when when I heard that story for the first time, you told told us at the time about an incident or on the incident on the story would you would you be comfortable saying that is do you think it's a, it's a right yeah yeah about the other person yeah 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 so um we were i think about i'm gonna say about 50 60 days into it and when you when you're on a trip like this you know it doesn't even have to be a trip this long but with sleep deprivation you can hallucinate um and you'll you'll see things sometimes. i'm surprised that you're in a in a state of sleep deprivation because you have these two hours so so it's it's you have your how much 12 well, you've hours. Twi- yeah i i think the reason the re and I, I, it's funny because i would have thought the same beforehand and i think the reason is is that if you finish a two-hour shift you're not really sleeping you're a you might not be sleeping but so say you finish you might be preparing food or mm. you're trying to fix something or you're doing something right um but at night time, all you want to do is sleep. But by the time you maybe 
you know, if, if you get out of clothes, if you you know, if you're soaking wet, maybe take the shorts off. You might get a quick bit of food, and then you, it might take you ten minutes, fifteen minutes at the other end just mm. to wake up and get yourself ready. And off you go. You probably get maybe an hour and a half. So because of that, you're you're not really getting into a deep recovery sleep. Yes, it's very um, you know, you're you're yes, you're you're not fully recharging yourself. So mm-hmm. it's it's um, I think we were you're not in a dream sleep. Yeah, you're not getting into, you know, you have what they call rapid eye movement or mm-hmm. REM sleep, mm-hmm. which is where your brain is actually still quite active yes. and you're reorganizing what you've, mm-hmm. you know, the brain is like filing stuff and sorting mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And when you when you sleep as well, you've, um, um, a cerebral spinal fluid is released in your brain and it's mm-hmm. like a, it's like sort of a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And it's washing away a lot of the mm-hmm. toxins and stuff mm-hmm. that build up in your brain during the, during the day. So you've got your your cognitive or your mental regeneration mm. and you've got your physical regeneration, mm. which is that deeper, slower way of sleep. Yeah. So because of, um, we weren't getting into that and during the night time, so you'd have three shifts each and you had about 12 hours of darkness, mm-hmm. it, you know, it would get dark at maybe sort of six, seven ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more the night went on, I always found it that, you know, if you had that last shift, it was always the hardest. Mm-hmm. I, I found the graveyard shift, we used to call it. Yeah. So we were about, f- I think it was about four in the morning one night, and it wasn't particularly rough. Um, I, myself and Tori swapped, uh, you know, and, and during the night when you swap, it, you come into the cabin and the other person is going out. And how mm-hmm. was it? Oh, I was grand. Yeah, yeah. See you in two hours. There wasn't mm-hmm. a whole lot of conversation because yeah. you're yeah. dog tired. Yeah. So I was about 20 minutes into a shift and um, I got so these. It was dark. It was dark, yeah, yeah. It was very dark. And was and it wasn't cold. It wasn't cold. I'm it just was trying to picture. Yeah, the... yeah. If you if you imagine, it was um, it was dark, but there was a bit. Of, I mean, you get some amazing like stars, and you're looking up at like, like because a, you don't have galaxy. a light pollution, exactly. so you actually see what you're supposed to see. Oh, it's phenomenal. So you'd, you'd have some light from that, mm-hmm. and it was a calm enough night. It was a warm enough night as well, and it wasn't yeah. particularly rough, and. You know, at night time, you sort of get into this zone as well where sometimes you might be listening to an audio book or music mm-hmm. or sometimes nothing and you're just, you're just, you hear the sounds of the, the oars to the mm-hmm. water and as you yeah. come through, you hear the oar locks and the, yeah. the gates just locking. So um, that's really, it was all fine. And I just got this eerie feeling out of nowhere that someone was standing behind me and I got these pins and needles coming down my back, mm-hmm. down my arms and just like... Oh God, that's a bit strange. We all so, know that, yeah. You know, I, I, I was rowing away, and and you know, as most people will will know, or just you might necessarily think it. Obviously, you've got your back to where you're going mm-hmm. when you're rowing. So I looked over my right shoulder. As strange as this sounds, sort of expecting to see someone. I look over, I don't see anyone. Then I look over my left shoulder, and I just see the lower body of a man. So, black pants, black dress shoes, probably two feet away from me, and. The reason I mentioned hallucinating leading into this is I knew sometimes I was hallucinating and I was mm-hmm. seeing things that were not real. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had this sort of conscious of like, okay, I know what's happening. Yeah, like, like I remember seeing a dog on a skateboard one mm-hmm. day coming across the swell in front of me. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm not seeing a dog on a skateboard out here. Mm-hmm. That's not real. Um, and your mind's playing tricks on you. So I, I this was different. Though. I looked at this and, and like I nearly shat myself. I was like, oh my God. I like... So I, I look back and then I look away again and it's gone. And I start thinking, it's black. It's the Grim Reaper. We're going to go down because other boats have gone down. Okay, if we do, I should die first because I'm older. It's probably not fair. You know, and Tori, oh, what are my parents going to say? And you've all these crazy thoughts mm. running through your mind. 
So I finished the two-hour shift, go in. Tori's like, how was it? And I said, you're not going to believe this. And I told her what happened. And to this day, I will never forget mm-hmm. the sight of her face was just in front of mm-hmm. the electronic control panel. Uh-huh. And the colour just washed off her face. And she was like, I don't believe you. And I was like, what? She's like, I had the exact same experience two hours earlier. But <laughs> she, she didn't tell me. She was like, I didn't want to freak you out. So I was obviously completely happy to completely freak her out. <laughs> and um, we sort of chatted about it. And, and she went on and, and she did her shift. And, and it was it was something I sort of got comfortable with. I thought, oh, maybe it's... Um, I don't have... At the time, I probably stronger beliefs now... But I didn't necessarily spend a whole lot of time thinking what happens with the afterlife mm-hmm. and is that mm-hmm. the spirit of someone or mm-hmm. what is that? And I, I remember when I came back and it happened to me a second time, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks later, same type of thing. And I remember looking at just researching online because we mm-hmm. would have kept a log as to where we were, yeah. you know, latitude yeah. and longitude yeah. every day. And I remember thinking, I wonder, like, would we have been close to any shipwrecks or anything like yeah. that? yeah. So I started just Googling and looking mm-hmm. online and I came across, I think it was old Lloyd shipping records. And we were a mile away from the last known location of a German U-boat the night that happened. Right. So I wondered, Yeah. was it, you know, was it a spirit? Was it someone who had gone down? I, to be honest, I don't need to explain it. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know it yeah. was what it was. But yeah. I, it was just so, so real. And yeah. to this day, I'm convinced that's what I saw. Yeah. Um, and I, I started getting curious about this afterwards. And I remember I read a book called Third Man Factor. And oh. it was a book talking about different people on different adventure trips over the years where in times of extreme difficulty or uncertainty or perhaps danger that they've experienced this third man this third person presence um okay so this is like a kind of known thing yeah apparently i I don't know how well it's known but i remember reading about i think actually it might have happened shackleton or one of the men on, on one of Shackleton's trip down to mm. Antarctica. And I, I, the explanation, I think, and I haven't looked into this in terms of the, the science of the brain, but whether we create a, a sort of a protective mechanism that we're creating someone who is another yeah. person or another presence yeah. to help us cope. Um, yeah. Like when you look at something like, um, you know, dissociative personality disorder or different mm-hmm. things where you see... Um, Remember that film Fight Club, for example, mm-hmm. years ago, yeah. and, and you know it was like yeah. it was Jekyll and Hyde of another mm-hmm. person, and, and sometimes if if someone has a lot of early trauma in their childhood, mm-hmm. it's a defense mechanism where this can this other person yeah. can be created. Now, so I don't know is was there a form of that going on mm-hmm. out here? What, to be honest, I don't. And I don't what's need the, to what's know. The, like a uh, m- let's say mainstream science. Uh, position on that or is it at all i don't know you see you see the thing about this is that if you know if the brain is doing something so if if i was somebody who i created another personality so if i had mm-hmm. say did yeah um and it doesn't matter in a way how real or unreal that is to someone if it's completely real to me yes i'm living that life yes. and I'm, I'm you know there was a lady i read about someone in in the uk and she had created they estimate between 20 and 100 different personalities. Um, and this is what she was living through. And I, I yeah. think she could even still be alive today. And she lives like she's not dangerous. Like she lives yeah. a life and she has some support yeah. or help. But even so much to the point where, you know, some of the personalities have bad eyesight. So literally she'll have glasses on 
when right. those personalities are coming out. So, I mean, this is to the extreme, obviously. Yeah. Um, so yeah. whether it was a bit of a coping mechanism, who knows? There are some people that would probably say, Paul, yeah. you didn't actually see that. That's not yeah. real. Um, yeah. And it's just interesting because your senses, I know you met, you touched on earlier, like when you see a sky at nighttime mm -hmm. and you're not surrounded by lights, mm -hmm. it's absolutely, and I'm sure loads of people have experienced it. You're out in the middle of an ocean and you've nothing, like you've, you're a thousand miles from land. It's amazing what you sort of see. And I know your senses, like your sense of smell is incredible. I remember we saw a sailboat and we, we talked it on the radio and it, it, it headed off. And I, I think before we even saw it, I thought I could smell chicken or I thought I could smell yeah. laundry. Like your yeah. senses get so yeah. sharp. Yeah. Um, that's, so that's, it's... That's that's well well well-known thing about that. And, and that goes even to, you know... Someone said that on the at the sea, this is like an extreme level. And for example, that you know the smell of a human activity on the boat is so different than the smell of everything else. You can pick it up, but you even hear that from hunters who are going out and hiking in you know these these doing these DIY hunt where yeah. they go out and hiking and essentially surviving in a number sure. of days. It's like they can smell the animal. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not like and it's like I, it's maybe it sounds stupid, but it's not yeah. only that you're glassing; you also kind of smell because again, you're. And I think that when you're out in the nature, you're kind of your sense is coming back alive into what it meant to be. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. quite often we don't get to experience that because we are so bombarded by different different. You Absolutely. know, stimuli around yeah. where we are, yeah. and we have uh, artificial light and all that thing. Yeah. And now, when you're all of a sudden out in the wild, your body's like, okay, it takes a couple of days. Like, okay, this is how it's supposed to work. Exactly. Right? And now you're experiencing something like, oh, have I just smelled that thing? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You just never <laughs> you've hit the nail on the head. Like, that's. It's interesting because like, there's quite a lot of people who have no idea how good we're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. Like if you think about what you've just said, like how overstimulated and, you know, maybe eating crap foods and not getting enough sleep and always connected and being plugged in. And I come across this in my work and it's, mm -hmm. it's actually, well, that's a normality that has come about for a lot of people that mm -hmm. isn't actually normal. It's a bit like that yes. old... Um, you know, so when, when you think about the senses and what the senses are capable and like mm -hmm. there's still so much we don't know about the human brain and the mind. Like it's, yeah. it's so there's things where, you know, if you go back to the likes of Freud mm -hmm. and some of the stuff he was coming out with, which, you know, some of it then today, mm -hmm. you know, like some of it was off the wall stuff. But I mean, he didn't have any science or he didn't have any, mm -hmm. you know, neuroscience behind anything. And mm -hmm. so I think sometimes we look for, proof and we look for evidence of stuff and, and obviously there's a place for that mm -hmm. and there's some in a way i sort of like it that you know there's some stuff that we can't explain and maybe yeah. we don't need to explain everything and yeah and i i think that the, 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 the mainstream science that i mentioned is, is really full of dogma sometimes yeah and 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 yeah, kind yeah. of goes against the very basic scientific uh, principle of questioning, right? Because science is you question everything and assume that yeah. we're wrong. And there are some things that you just, in a, in a mainstream setting, you don't question that because yeah, you yeah, straight yeah. away get the label of, you know, yeah. this, that, or pseudoscience or whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is kind of upsetting because there is so many other things to discover. You just keep an open mind. And exactly. Say, well, hang on a second, right? This is not... Exactly. And is, your senses, as you said, like your your sense of smell, your sense of creativity, your sense, mm. like how you're feeling, your thoughts. Like it's amazing with these sort of trips as well as, 
as you rightly say, a lot of these senses come alive when we're mm. away from you yeah. know, the day to day that that a lot of us live in. We um, have an opportunity to actually acknowledge them. Yeah, and it's it's just I I think like even just a really simple thing, you know, uh, and this is actually some of the science there's there's a lot of neuroscience behind this but Mm. our brains if i said to you tell me environments where we're we're very innovative Mm -hmm. we're very you know we can harness innovation Mm -hmm. we come up with things um neuroscience now tells us Mm -hmm. outside in motion near water yeah three things as an example and this came up recently and i know i get it off and i could be out on the bike or i'm out you know hiking or whatever it is i'm doing around the kayak and i'll get ideas I yeah. get stuff. I'm not even That's trying to. Absolutely. You know, I'm not even trying to. They coming. They just come. It's interesting. I was with a a, a a client I was working with a couple of months ago, and we were talking about this, and uh, I said, "So what about for you guys?" There was about maybe thirty, forty people in the room. Mm. The session that I was uh, I was facilitating. I said, "Where do you get like your when you're when you're innovative? Mm-hmm. Tell me what's going on. What's the circumstance? Where mm-hmm. are you? What are you doing?" And the CEO put his hand off. He's a really cool guy, an Australian fellow. And he says, I don't want to freak anyone out, but it often happens for me in the shower. <laughs> and you get good ideas. Now, I hadn't said anything about circum, but I've just yeah, said to you about yeah, being yeah. outside in fresh air. Yeah. And they were just giving me all different ideas and where it happens mm-hmm. for them. And then I just shared that one point mm-hmm. with them. I said, well, there's three areas, outside, in motion, near water. Mm-hmm. And it's it's things like that that sometimes we can go counter counterintuitive to that. We can say, Okay, we're going to put people in the room there. Mm. Guys, we need to get, we need to come up with some good ideas and Yeah, be innovative now. There you go. Um whereas if we were to sort of work with the body and work with the mind mm-hmm. to give ourselves the best chance of it, sometimes it's not even it's not even at work. It's like that, mm-hmm. well, there's a half a day, go on, go for a hike there. Like I do a lot of um, yeah. coaching sessions and stuff where we're outside. Yeah. Um you know, because if, if obviously the weather permits it and mm-hmm. you're fresh air, you're you're walking, so yeah. it's um yeah, like I just said, there's a neuroscience behind that, how the brain works and how the various parts are switching on and off and then they can go about doing their own thing and that's where the yeah, idea is coming from. because one of the myths, I suppose, and I'm only, I consider myself for the rest of my life a student of this, but um, of the mind is that there's this sort of myth that, oh, a certain part of the brain does a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's all, like, if you take, say, your amygdala as an example, mm-hmm. small little part in, in sort of in the center of your brain, mm-hmm. your limbic system, and it does a lot of your emotional processing and regulation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will just might say, oh, it's the amygdala, that's the emotional, you know, mm-hmm. it's the limbic system. And mm-hmm. it plays a big role, but other parts are involved as well. So with the innovation piece, one of the things that happens when often we come up with good ideas is a thing called sensory gating, where your mind is said, did you ever find that point where you could be, you could be driving home or you could be out mm-hmm. for a run and you, you sort of nearly lose track of, you know, you arrive home and all of a sudden, oh. Oh, yeah. Where where did that? Oh, yeah. You know, so, especially you, like when you're cycling and it's like, yeah. have I already passed that point on the way Yeah, back? yeah, or yeah. Is it, or is it still like, and this is the road that you cycle, you know, like hundreds of times. And yeah. All of a sudden, you're kind of like, again, that's something that we already spoke on the, on the podcast, like a state of flow, like a state of meditation. Where, exactly. where you flow state yeah and yeah. it's like oh what's uh where where am i yeah what's what happened yeah and yeah, you've yeah. just yeah a lot of your 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 sort of your sensory um receptors even have just they've just sort of dialed down a bit so you're mm-hmm. just sort of yes you're not necessarily thinking or you're not distracted and and that's one of the circumstances that can excuse me contribute to yeah to coming up and, and being more sort of more innovative so it's um yeah it's fascinating that you know yeah here we are talking now yeah. we got onto this but here we are you know it's, <laughs> no, no, that's, it's, that's, it's that's, all that's, it's all good that's good yeah uh listen any 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 final 
thoughts on the on the Atlantic trip? Yeah, I don't know. I think um, I think one of the things that and, and this is life experience. I think it doesn't matter if it's the Atlantic or anything else. But I remember coming off the Atlantic, and I think actually my dad might have said it to me that mm-hmm. you know you you've changed a bit. You know the person. I remember. I think it was my dad. I said. I said like the person who left the Atlantic and mm-hmm. who embarked and who left the Canary Islands. That person didn't come back. Mm-hmm. In that, no doubt. You, I'm, I'm not surprised. You know, you I'm you like, not that you, you don't completely change or anything, but you you sort of evolve, and it it definitely for me, it it because you've so much time out there to think about things in your life that you've enjoyed, mm-hmm. what you might want to do, stuff you might want to change, because you you're you're totally uninterrupted. And I think for me, that was one thing. It, it challenged my own perception of, I think, how I want to live life and mm-hmm. what's possible, what isn't possible. Um, so I think in a healthy way, it just it just shook up some of my perspectives, right. um, which I think isn't a, isn't a bad thing. You know, and it, you, you mentioned it earlier, the, the curiosity and the mm-hmm. openness to learn and to experience stuff. I think that definitely shifted um, to the point where, you know, I th- I think I've always had this in me, but you know, if someone says something can't be done, mm-hmm. uh, and I grew up with mom always telling me there's no such thing as can't, and I think I always I just instinctively now, and it's it's been sort of reinforced mm-hmm. I think by the Atlantic trip to go well, why can't it? Maybe we just haven't figured out how to do it yet, yeah. but uh, you know, maybe I can't do it, but you could, or you know, yeah. it it's I suppose I, I I'm probably a lot more curiously questioning things now, mm-hmm. um, even for you know from a work perspective to go okay it's 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 fine doing some of the work but me as you know a performance coach or a consultant right now mm-hmm. where i need to be in a year and two years and three years mm-hmm. i need to continuously up my game because yeah. the version of me now mm-hmm. in my opinion it needs to be more evolved it needs to improve so that you're coming up with more innovative ways to work with people and it's not being innovative for the sake of it, but it's Mm -hmm. going, so what can I do or what pieces of whether it's science or whether it's experiences or bringing people out and retreats, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. what can I incorporate into what I do to make that experience better? So that if I'm working with someone, they're going to take more away from that. So that's, I think that shifted a bit for me after the the Atlantic trip. Great. Okay, I just want to quickly touch on the on some other of your adventures. We we don't have enough time to speak about everything, right? But then your Arctic trip. Yeah, that was um. So that was a trip where it was um. I was living in Canada, so I was living in Vancouver, over in the west coast of Canada, and um, it was a trip that myself. How many years after was it? This would have been um five. No, it was 2014. 2013 was the Arctic trip and 2006 was the Atlantic trip. So right. um, so it was a few years after. I'd done a couple of small things in between. Yeah. but And have you been like thinking like, damn, I need to, I need to get you, into that yeah. zone again. Was that something? Yeah, no, do you know what the funny thing is? I, I think it, I think these things just sort of seem to happen as in, you know, the way you could be, you could be walking down the road, you could be doing anything and there's mm-hmm. probably opportunities and choices and different things all around us every day mm-hmm. but depending on where we are we may where we are in ourselves we may see those opportunities or we may not and i think yeah i think for me i wasn't running around going god what's the next thing what's the next thing mm-hmm. it sort of happens organically and i think i think if i'm if i'm in a sort of a good place mm-hmm. i'm more likely to go oh god that's interesting okay. so like i was literally 
I was asked to speak at an adventure show and okay. it was like a sort of um so it wasn't like a itch that you had to scratch no i I think maybe you know maybe subconsciously it was there mm-hmm. going I'd done a couple of smaller sort of cycling stuff in between and I, maybe without me consciously being aware of it i was <laughs> you know i was on the prowl for something yeah, 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 yeah. um but it was a it was an event called feet it was a really cool event actually you had about eight or nine t- people speaking for i think it was seven or eight minutes each mm-hmm. and there was some adventure people there who'd done other trips and and kevin who i mentioned earlier kevin valley he was uh he was there speaking i think before me and we all arrived to the the theater where it was on that four or five o'clock and went mm-hmm. through sort of prep stuff and then the show started at whatever seven o'clock yeah. eight um and so we we're all chatting away beforehand and kevin held the record for the fastest trip at the time to the south pole wow. so he was talking about loads of different trips he'd done and, and this was one of them and kevin's parents are from limerick where mm-hmm. i'm from mm-hmm. so we ended up just sort of chatting and over the course of the night I was, because Antarctica, I was in Antarctica years ago, but I was just, the whole thing of the South Pole was, mm-hmm. it was sort of in the back of my mind. So my seven Kev arranged to meet for a coffee a week or two later. And um, I wanted to pick his brain on the South Pole. And what I didn't realize is he wanted to pick my brain because he had been thinking about rowing or trying to go through the Northwest Passage <laughs> in the Canadian Arctic. So no one oh, had right. ever done it. So, um, again, just for, for I suppose people listening, so the, the Northwest Passage, if you look at a map of Canada and go north, so if you go say go west, go to Vancouver on the west coast and keep going north until you run out of land, the Northwest Passage connects the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, so it runs right through the Canadian archipelago up in the, mm-hmm. the high Arctic. So that was, um, no one had ever managed to do that in one season on human power, and primarily because probably up to 10, 15 years ago, it was choked with ice year-round. Yes. Is that the passage that just recently opened up for the first time? Well, because it, of the, the it's climate, basically, yeah, with the, with, 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 the clim- with the warming of the climate now and with climate change as a whole, um, you now get maybe a two to three month window where the ice will break up and it's navigable. Mm-hmm. So um, that's probably one of the main reasons why someone hadn't done it, I'd say, before. And, and look, mm-hmm. it might not be on everyone's radar to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. So um, so Kev was asking me about this and mm-hmm. I started chatting. I, I honestly... Lower. Well, he was like, you know, could could the boat that you used, would that be maybe suitable for mm-hmm. up here? And half an hour into it, I was like, God, this could be really interesting. And he said, you know, I, I've been thinking about this for... Kev had this idea probably 10 years earlier. Oh, wow. So um, he's like, it's one of the last firsts yes. that has yet to be done. And somebody will do it at some point. So he was like, "Like, what do you think? And I was like, yeah, geez, that sounds interesting. And um, so we left and I walked out of there mm-hmm. hand on heart, honestly going, I'm not too sure where the Northwest Passage is. I didn't want to say to Kev, like, uh-huh. so where exactly is? I knew it was up somewhere <laughs> in the Arctic. So um, I started looking at Googling mm-hmm. it. And I think it was just before Christmas. I was coming back to Ireland for mm-hmm. Christmas. Got back to Vancouver after Christmas and I rang Kev and I said, let's do it mm-hmm. um, if you're up for it. So that was the start of it. And it was interestingly, so Kevin has written a book about that trip, which was only published in the last couple of months. Okay. And he actually, because he sent me a, a proof to sort of read some of it beforehand. And his his perception of what happened there mm-hmm. was that I walked away. He was like, yeah, I'm not sure if Paul was altogether that interested. Uh-huh. And that, that's what Kev sort of, that's how, how it landed with him. Um, oh, whereas I think God. I was probably going, right, I need to find out, I need to just find out a little bit more about this. Um, but it was it was similar once, 
mm-hmm. once I got to that point, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, but that turned out to be probably the most challenging trip both to do and to prepare for because we we decided you, you we had, we we sort of brought it down to two choices so we had a team of four so mm-hmm. a good friend of Kev's Frank Wolf um was going to do it with us and Dennis Barnett and made a mind from Dublin mm-hmm. so the four of us were, were all going to do it together mm-hmm. and Frank's a filmmaker so mm-hmm. we decided to make a documentary on this and oh. we said well we really shouldn't be able to do this. So mm-hmm. wouldn't it be interesting to stop into some of the communities along the way, get their view on climate change? Yeah. Let's not tell, like, it's not our business. Oh, climate change, what do you think? Yeah. Go, you tell that's, us what, that's, what, that's great. What because, life is like. Because these people know, because they're, they're like. <sighs> They've grown up on the land. I, they know the it. land. I'd love it that you just said, let's like, it's okay, it's, let's, let's not us decide no. what it is. 100%. Ask the people who are there because they, kind of know they've seen the backyard it's their home it's like if you know if if it's like if someone lived somewhere for 40 50 60 70 years and someone Mm. else comes in and says oh so this is what's happened here no no, just there's a reason i think we've two ears and one mouth yeah so we went in there and we just you know we just wanted to listen and hear from them and it was fascinating just to I mean, there was only two or three communities Mm because this is a couple of thousand kilometers Mm -hmm. of a a trip so there isn't a whole lot of you know settlements up there yeah so we got to speak with with and, and learn from the inuit people and they um they just said like some of them would say yeah like when i grew up these are elders who were maybe mm-hmm. 60 70 80 mm-hmm. years old we're like well when we grew up you know we didn't have water it was choked up with ice year round and mm-hmm. that's affected for them you know the type of uh, animals you see up there mm-hmm. they're hunting they're yeah. fishing so it's it's really affected them their way of life so i mean a simple example was um one of the guys was telling us about pizzlies and growlers. Mm. So now you're getting um, grizzly bears moving further north yes. because they wouldn't have gone up there in the past yes. and they're breeding with polar bears. Yes. So they were telling us like when you get a male polar and mm. a female grizzly, mm-hmm. they call it a pizzly. Piz- when it's a male um, grizzly and a female <laughs> polar, they call it a growler. So it it's just, it, it, just things like that which yeah. seems sort of crazy in a way so polar bears are are actually they're grizzlies they're they're very closely related to grizzlies i think they they're, are they're yeah. grizzlies who are ventured further north and and they uh, adapted listen so the question is like overall the when you were talking to the indigenous people there do they finding the life better now because the climate is warmer it's it's a it's a tricky one i mean one of the things that i wasn't aware of until mm-hmm. and i was back up in the arctic back in in april um for a different trip and i remember even before that one and before this mm-hmm. one a couple of years ago that like the inuit and the inuvialit they're like they're you know they like to roam the land they like to travel on the land yeah this is what what i heard from people that it's part of sort of who they are and back in i think it was the 1950s the canadian government were trying to corral people into communities mm-hmm. you know you have to, you have to yeah, yeah, communities yeah. and yeah they were treated quite badly mm-hmm. um and at the moment there there is in canada there's there's sort of maybe an, an acknowledgement to a point about reconciliation mm-hmm. that you know there needs to be a reconciliation for all okay. the stuff that happened back then okay. so i mean i think for them life is it's a harsh way of living i mean they've grown up there and and when you're in these communities they have maybe you know they have 200 300 400 people you know where we finished up in cambridge bay was 1500 people which is quite big mm-hmm. So, I mean, for them, everything's very practical. Like, you know, can mm-hmm. I fix my skidoo if it breaks down? Yeah. Because if it, if I can't, 
I could be stranded out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, you know, one of the, an outfitter who I met in, in April and he was telling me, he's like, I just, I love being on the land. And I remember one night being out with him, he'd be showing me how they cut ice out of frozen rivers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how you cut it depending on the cracks and stuff yeah. like that. And and I think the land, it's 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 a real, it's a tough way of life for them because I think now with, you know, with internet and the way the world has sort of opened up, the mm-hmm. younger people are you know maybe they they see what's outside of this community mm-hmm. and and some of them will will grow up and will want to leave and will want to get oh. out and they mightn't come back and some do want to come back and some of these communities are um you know we the, one of the communities in Baffin Island where I was very high rate of suicide and it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a you know if there isn't things to do and if they've haven't got much funding from maybe the government to provide mm-hmm. services and stuff for young people it's it's really challenging but this so. is that rate of suicide when I, and this is a question that I may not know the answer but I was wondering whether it is because of the opening up of the world and their life is generally changing so it's, then yeah, they're yeah. going into the you know like oh I would like this and that where before because I mean like I mean like in the traditional they were able of living, if there was a high suicide rate, they probably wouldn't survive to the modern time. So is it like a more of a, like they had to focus on their way of life before it was hard life and they were doing that, but they were happy. But now because everything is easier with the access to technology, this is yeah. coming. It's, it's hard to know. I mean, I know obviously, with, and I'm no expert on suicide by, by long stretch imagination. There's different factors, obviously they can contribute to it. And I know we, we, um, we stayed with uh this was in april i stayed with um a local in in his home uh for a night when we when we finished the trip and he was a uh, he was a retired nurse so he does a lot of youth work mm-hmm. up there in this mm-hmm. in this town called penderton and he um he was telling us with the with a lot of the teenage because maybe you know their home situation might not be great it might not be mm-hmm. stable there could be you know drink involved and for a lot of these communities they're dry communities so they've chosen that you know there's no alcohol like you you can you can have alcohol in your home yeah but i I think from my understanding of it it's a little bit like um like some of the aboriginal people in in the um in australia mm-hmm. they're, they they don't cope as well with alcohol yeah their system yeah um yeah. i think it's a physiological thing yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's, there's a hormone or, or some some chemical in the body that that some of these just groups has just less yeah like, like it, uh, it, people in asia they have less and that's why just the getting, tolerance level i think is, yeah. is less so i think it it's not a great thing mm-hmm. you know for them to have per se so a lot of these communities so if you take maybe not a great home situation maybe if both parents aren't mm-hmm. there or one has mm-hmm. left you know mm-hmm. for work or whatever put in drink put in boredom put in potentially yes. i can see through the internet there's mm-hmm this stuff Ex- out here exactly that's, and that's what i'm yeah. you know i my schooling you know I, i'm getting to grade 12 but really the level of it it's probably grade eight or nine and you know what use is this to me because i'm going to be living off the land so a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff can go into that to, to yeah so i suppose it, it it gave me when you go through some of these places and it's interesting because the first arctic trip the rowing trip like we pulled into a few places and like people were fascinated by God, you're rowing through here. What's that's crazy. And, mm-hmm. and again, I was just fascinated about, wow, you live up here. And, you know, like a real simple thing was, um, you know, a lot of them will have community freezers. So they literally <laughs> would have these freezers in the permafrost where, you know, people will go out hunting um, yeah. and they'll come back and they'll, they'll store food, like whether it's caribou, whether it's 
Arctic char. So they'll mm-hmm. catch more, you know, for elders and stuff. Yeah. So there's an incredible sense of community up there in one way, which is which is amazing. Mm. Uh, and it's also a, it's a it's a practical yeah way yeah. of of it's a harsh place to live. I'm su- I'm actually I'm actually surprised that that she's saying that there's a sense of community, but at the same time, there's a high suicide rate. Well, it's, there it's is a book by Sebastian Junger called The Tribe. I don't know if you heard about that book. No, no. I, essentially, it's a, it's a fascinating book where he actually says that that how how important for for humans is this this sense of the of the community mm. overcoming adversity. And and he gives example where the suicide rates are the highest when there are you know like a very expensive houses and gated communities and like everybody's like you know like a great living there's high suicide rates while in a in the neighborhoods where there's a poverty and people are kind of have to organize together just to survive just to go through the day actually there are the suicide rates are very low. Yeah, and, and he and kind of like you know this is so. This is what I'm like based on on that. What I read is is kind of surprising. And I, well, I think as well is is so what I'm t- when I talk about the community freezer, uh, and the community where that was was a place called Politok, which was higher up in the Arctic, mm-hmm. and I talk about say Pangerton, which was a different settlement. Oh, okay, so they they, so they, they, they yeah they were different. Uh, um, it, so, but but having said that, I'm sure. There's there's quite a lot of variables that go into it. Oh, yes. So um, as usual, nothing is that simple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's definitely. I mean, there's. It's it's amazing to, you know, we only spent a few days in say Pangerton where we finished the, the the trip I did in in April, whereas the the rowing trip say through the Northwest Passage, mm-hmm. you know, we were in Palatok for one night after mm-hmm. a month just to sort of restock and we, we needed to get another anchor and yeah um so you get to you get a tiny little snippet you know into yes. sort of what what it's a little flavor but it was um it was just fascinating to see how they live and to see um just their perspective again it comes back to what we were talking about earlier even with the australian cycle mm-hmm. you just get to see other people's views of the world yeah. and i'm just curious by nature i think yeah. so you're you know, it's like wow god that's that's amazing and so um it's i think it's it is one of the nice things that and that's why i said earlier with trips and stuff there mm. i think there just needs to be it's all look every person decides what they want to do uh and each to their own and some people will want to do a trip just to do it and it's the physical challenge and, and i'm similar in that respect mm. so i suppose the and that i would put with that is i think maybe as i get a bit older it's I want it to mean something a bit more. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, and that trip was tough because, you know, we, we got two months into it and mm-hmm. we didn't get the whole way through the mm-hmm. Northwest Passage. So the water was starting to, it was sort of September, early September. It was just starting to sort of slush, starting to freeze yeah. up again. So so we had to make a call at Cambridge Bay to go, that's as far as we're going to get. Right. So um, it's tough like that. I mean, when you... Are going to reattempt? I'll see. I mean, we're, I'm, we're, we're looking at it. Um there's a lot of things involved in it because I think with the benefit of hindsight, we went in a rowing boat, mm-hmm. ocean rowing boat style. We can go 24 hours a day. We got thrashed around up there by weather. A lot of the winds that when we had touched base with some of mm-hmm. the communities to get a feel in advance, mm-hmm. go, what are the prevailing winds? And they're mm-hmm. westerly, so mm-hmm. we started to go west yeah. to east, but winds were really erratic. Some of the locals said to us, like, yeah, they're just, this year they seem to be all over the shop. And, and mm-hmm. that's... I think now if we were going to go back to either try and finish it mm-hmm. or potentially go back and try and do the whole thing in one go, yeah. it'd be a kayak trip. Um, oh. So I think it's it's um, 
Okay, you, you recalibrate and yeah, yeah I suppose yeah. again, look, you you learn from your experience and you sort of you you do your best. I mean, like when we we built the boat and we got, you know, we had an awful lot went into that, and and mm. one of the things like I remember, we were on a timeline, so because we knew we need to leave in late June, mm-hmm. early July once the ice breaks up. Yeah. Everything works backwards from that. So we were on a timeline to get the boat built. And it, it, the whole trip was costing us probably about a quarter of a million Canadian dollars to, between all the gear and getting yeah. stuff up there and everything goes into it. So we were putting our own money into it. But we got to a point that we, we, we were clear with the boat builder. Like he said, okay, I need to be paid in quarterly tranches. Yeah. We said we'd pay you as we can, but we could very well get to tranche two, mm-hmm. have nothing left and... Mm-hmm. He was like, that's fine. You'll have a shell of a boat, but you just need to be aware of that. So we yeah. were, one of the things with some of these trips is you've got to, you got to believe, I suppose, in yourself or you got to back yourself to go, this is, and I remember talking to Kevin about this. I said, this is too good an overall trip mm-hmm. for it not to happen. And like, I'll never forget <laughs> sending a check one day. It was the last mm-hmm. of the funds that we had to the boat builder. Mm-hmm. And as I posted, like, cause he lived in Vancouver Island and, and, we were down to probably a month or two where it was like, right, we have to try this next year. Mm. And we did get a corporate partner on board eventually, but it was literally down to the wire. And that's sort of, you know, a company, an Irish company actually called Mainstream, Renewable okay. Power, and they build um, solar good. farms all over the world Very and wind good. farms. And uh, that's one of the things with some of these trips. It's probably a little bit like starting your own business that there's there's uncertainty and you have to, you have to literally yeah. push the boat out and go, yeah. I don't know if this is even, it's a really weird thing because you put everything into it, you commit to it, you start telling people about it. Mm-hmm. So you start sort of hanging yourself out there a bit. Uh, and in a way, I suppose that's needed because if you don't yeah. do that, you know, you, you put, you, you bring a bit of pressure on yourself to go, right, well, we're telling people about this. We've built a website or whatever you've yeah, done. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a really, it's a really tricky one because, you don't know until you get, unless you have, you know, in our case, we didn't have that money lying around mm-hmm. to self-fund it. So, it's, um, <laughs> and that's, that's the reality with a lot of these sort of expeditions. That's just part of it. So. Great. Listen, uh, Paul, tell, 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 tell us where, where they can find any, anything more about your, you, your, your trips, your adventures, uh, because obviously there's much more and we'll we'll have to wrap it up. So yeah, yeah. for anyone interested um, for, for more. Yeah, I suppose, look, for anyone who wants more information, um, my company website is Taurus Consulting. That's mm-hmm. Taurus is T-U-R-A-S. So mm-hmm. TaurusConsulting.com. Taurus is the Gaelic word for journey. Um, right. So when I set my, my company up a number of years ago, I, I just it really sort of, you know, we're all on our own journey in life, whatever that might be. And, and obviously... I suppose I have an affinity for different types of adventure journeys. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there's there's stuff on there, and I do a lot of collaboration work with mm-hmm. Below the Line, mm-hmm. uh, which is where we're in in our offices here. Mm-hmm. So there's information on on Below the Line and Peak Teams, who are partners that I sort of work with as well. So right, it's plus, all up there. Plus, plus the books on the yeah yeah. There's links it, there if people want to buy buy either of the books. They're they're all up there as well. Yeah, that's perfect, Paul. Thank you very much for doing this. It was a pleasure. No, my pleasure's mine. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you.
You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.